0: G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. A couple of weeks ago, major companies put out a full-page news advertisement promoting the removal of state lockdowns for the benefit of the economy. This places the question of health versus profit squarely on the agenda. We have also heard about large companies making hay out of JobKeeper, rewarding executives with bonuses and shareholders with dividends, while Centrelink is apparently searching out workers who they say receive payments they shouldn't have. The LNP governments federally and in New South Wales are pinning their rhetoric on their core value of individual responsibility, a very poor weapon against a pandemic for the majority of workers who do not receive shareholder payouts, who can't even demand customers wear a mask. Today, we hear some words from the belly of the beast, New South Wales, from workers intimately affected by the wildfire that is the Delta virus in Sydney. And just to remind you that other things are happening other than COVID, we hear from Edie Shepherd, a get-up campaigner, about fracking in the Northern Territory, with some reference to the false promise of jobs as a balance to wholesale destruction of environment. But first, some union news. (laughs) The Australian Meat Industry Employees Union, the AMIEU, reports that after months of uncertainty, Coles supermarkets have announced it will make all its in-store butchers and meat packers redundant from the 11th of October 2021. Coles have decided to use pre-packaged products in all stores. Acting Federal Secretary of the AMIEU, Matt Jornos, said product knowledge will disappear and workers who had provided decades of loyal service will be thrown on the scrap heap. Nationally, more than one thousand five hundred and seventy meat team members will be offered a redundancy or alternative work for far less than their current salaries. This is a move that might save money and put more profit in shareholders' pockets but do very little for consistency of product quality and customer service that Coles promotes in its advertising, Mr Giorno said. Butchering is a trade and in-store Coles butchers have completed an apprenticeship and have extensive product knowledge. All that will be gone as Coles will now have its products processed at a third-party facility and will be brought to the store, gas flushed and Cairo He said. <coughs> a report by the Australian Institute Centre for Future Work uses ABS labour force data to show that 40,000 tertiary education jobs, one in five positions, has been lost in the 12 months to May 2021. This 40,000 figure is the size of a large regional Australian city. 35,000 of those jobs are at public university. Jim Stanford, Director of Australia's Institutes, the Centre for Future Work, called on the federal government to fund a $3.75 billion rescue package. The National Tertiary Education Union, NTEU President Alison Barnes said... We really need vice-chancellors and university management to step up and ensure that their institutions are able to perform their core functions of teaching and research. And intrinsic to that is ensuring that you don't use this pandemic to further casualise your workforce. These job losses coincide with reports of universities relying on video presentations by fired or deceased staff as course material, as they increasingly turn to online coursework, the United Workers Union reported that on Monday, the 30th of August, three workers at Scotts Refrigerated Logistics Erskine Park facility tested positive for COVID-19. Since then, a total of 11 workers have tested positive for the disease, with many more identified as close contacts by New South Wales Health and instructed to isolate for 14 days. Scott's Refrigerated Logistics is one of the largest cold-store logistics companies in Australia, supplying all major supermarkets such as Woolworths, Coles, IGA and Aldi. Some workers have already passed on the infection to their families, with household contacts including children testing positive to the virus. Workers walked off the job on Monday the 6th of September after raising concerns that Scott's was in breach of its COVID-safe plan. One worker seen in physical contact with a confirmed case of COVID-19 was instructed by Scotts to continue working on-site, loading food and groceries instead of isolating. Other breaches of the COVID safety plan include instructing workers from other areas to work on the dock, compromising the larger work site by exposing workers from different sections and workers instructed to continue shifts despite being unwell. UWU members are refusing to return to work until Scotts takes its COVID response seriously. This is the third time in the past 18 months that UWU members have raised safety concerns about exposure to COVID-19 at work.
1: Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together.
0: Stick together.
2: Stick together.
0: Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. Language, or how a message is shaped, has been the big issue for politicians when it has come to COVID. With big companies and the Liberal National Party, as well as anti-vaxxers, calling for the removal of lockdowns and restrictions, the story has become one of individual responsibility. Death because of underlying health issues, a roadmap to freedoms, borrowed from the Iraq war rhetoric, and we all know how that ended up, and a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And to borrow from Paul Gregory, who was writing for Sydney Criminal Lawyers News, just so we're all clear, a virus is an infectious agent that only replicates itself within the cells of living organisms. A virus is too small to be seen under a microscope. And it can't be chased down, arrested, placed in the lock up at the Surrey Hills Police Station or denied bail by a New South Wales magistrate. So when New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller explained during a budget estimates hearing on the 1st of September that in relation to COVID-19, his force is treating the virus itself like a criminal, it seemed a little odd. Is it possible to say that the rhetoric is actually a modern version of the Emperor Has No Clothes? Even as the screws are being put on to get vaccinated, ACOS is reporting that if you are low paid, you are lagging behind in the vaccination stakes. So the New South Wales government response is couched in concerned tones, but words are cheap. We hear from some of the workers on the ground. Let's hear first from a person who was working for a privately owned business contracted to run a COVID testing centre on a Sydney construction site.
1: I started doing rapid antigen testing at a construction site, testing the workers. It was a really big site of about 1,600 to 2,000 workers. In starting my first week of work, it was total chaos. We had no biohazard waste bins. We were using black bin bags to dispose of everything from PPE to contaminated test samples. We were even asked to take home our face shields as there was just nowhere safely to store them. People had been using other people's face shields due to the lack of PPE supply that we did have. Protocols weren't being followed. There was an incident that I heard about from a colleague where a collector tested a worker and the test was positive instead of doing a PCR test there was just another rapid antigen test that was done and subsequently it came up negative and the worker was just free to leave and you know due to the lack of staff ratios surfaces weren't being cleaned between tests there was just so many like ongoing issues. Um, I approached my team leader with like some of the concerns. I had and um also because you know other colleagues were extremely hesitant about approaching management in fear of losing their jobs during the pandemic um as all of us are you know casuals on eight-week contracts when I did approach management I was just shut down by them you know they told me that there was no training available and basically I just had to deal with it I ended up speaking to my union on wanting to get some advice on how to go forward and they told me that they would write a letter to management on my behalf with the information that I provided to them. And after all of this, the site was eventually shut for two weeks due to a positive case of a construction worker and there was zero information given to myself or my colleagues. We weren't told if we were close or casual contacts of the positive case we weren't told if we had to isolate. And after this interaction with management and my union, I've um, subsequently been sacked from my job for exercising my rights as a unionist and speaking up about OHS issues in my workplace. It's definitely a lesson that I've learnt that the only way that we can win our demands as workers in this pandemic is to fight collectively.
0: Now a word from a train driver talking a few weeks ago about his experience.
3: Uh, I work as a train driver. I'm a delegate with the RTBU. There's currently over 500 public transport workers who are isolating or in either quarantined or in self-isolation because they're close or casual contacts with a positive case. Overwhelmingly bus drivers who... It's palpably obvious we're at extremely high risk of contracting the disease because they have to work in enclosed air spaces with people who may be positive. So sometimes, you know, people will be on a bus ride for an hour or longer. Yet the government has, up until a few days ago, uh, refused to vaccinate bus drivers in Sydney. It's people who are at highly risk of, car- of contracting the disease, spreading it to their families and their co-workers, There's whole depots. Um, The Burwood depot um, in the bus transit system currently is entirely in lockdown um, because of one person, the person who was actually doing like sign on checks for people, um, turned out to be a positive case. Now, even though they've um, announced that they're going to now only like, you know, months and months into this uh, outbreak, um, prioritise vaccinating bus drivers. Um, train drivers and people working the railways are still exempt from that priority vaccination. And this is a group of workers who come from all over Sydney, mixed together in depots, um, in shared uh, meal rooms and all these kind of things, where there's been very little done to actually increase the safety of the workplaces uh, in the eventuality that there will be um, people who are positive who come into work um who are still have to go through the hunger game system of trying to get access to the vaccine yeah people have been still forced to go to work in workplaces that are unessential and should have been shut down months ago but workers who work in workplaces which are absolutely essential and have to function are not being given the protection Please. that they need to make sure that they don't get
4: sick or you know, worse.
0: Now a word from a nurse at a public hospital.
4: So I'm a public hospital nurse in Sydney. I work at St Vincent's and I just really want to agree with um, society generally being ill-equipped to deal with a pandemic and you'd think if anywhere was um, built to deal with it, it would be a hospital but they really aren't. I've worked in so many public hospitals um, in my nursing career and, you know, we have pandemics every year. It, the influenza is like... a global annual pandemic and it's something that happens every year. Every hospital is ill-equipped for it. We don't have enough rooms to deal with even a flu pandemic that happens every year, let alone COVID. We're flat out at the best of times in the public health system. We're looking at potentially thousands of um, ICU patients when we only have ICU beds in the hundreds. Um, if we let this thing rip, even if we, you know, open up at 70 or 80 percent, we're still going to be massively overwhelmed because we just do not have the capacity in the public health system, which is just chronically under-resourced and underfunded. So, yeah, I work in the anaesthetics and theatre department and we're all being kind of trained up to look after ICU patients and it's not something that I've ever really done, but, you know, like I guess you just sink or swim in this kind of situation.
0: We finish our report on the New South Wales COVID situation from a worker's point of view with an ICU nurse.
2: I would like to make it very clear that the views being expressed by myself today are my own. And I'm speaking as a nurse and branch official within the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. I am not representing my employers in any way. I think it's fair to say that none of us imagined that we would find ourselves living through a global pandemic. I certainly did not imagine it when I started my nursing career over a decade ago, Um, but here we are. I'm here to talk about what it's like to be a nurse in New South Wales during the COVID-19 pandemic and what's making us so worried. For the last decade, the NSW NMA has been campaigning for ratios, a campaign that is fighting for more nurses and midwives to the number of patients in our care so that we can deliver the care and treatment our patients deserve. We are fighting for there to be enough of us to meet the workload of our role. Not having enough nurses or midwives is both unsafe for our patients and incredibly distressing and demoralizing for myself and my colleagues. And all of this was before COVID-19. Since then, Due to the inherent reliance on healthcare workers to address the pandemic response, our workforce has been further stretched to meet demands in new work environments, such as airport screening teams, the quarantine system, COVID-19 testing clinics, vaccination centers, and many more I haven't listed. In the months and weeks prior to the June 16 outbreak, many of the Union branches were engaging in industrial action, which was obviously disrupted Um, instead of fighting for safer patient care we've had to return to the front lines of our current battle with covid we've all been working overtime to make sure that someone is there to look after our patients in hospital as well as out in the community and now we find ourselves teetering on the edge of there not being enough healthcare workers to meet the needs of an increasing number of high acuity patients fortunately we do have a well connected healthcare system here with a workforce who understand the importance of teamwork. The healthcare system is working because it's powered by a compassionate, competent, and highly skilled workforce. However, we are all acutely and intimately aware of our human limits and the hard limits of our resources. The escalating outbreak is a daily reality for every healthcare worker. Each shift becomes more difficult to get through. We're all feeling exhausted and not just because we're healthcare workers, but we're also members of the same communities we're caring for. And there's a lot of concern about how the situation is impacting on the broader population. It really frustrates me to read the opinions of how lockdown is affecting our mental health. Lockdown sucks for all of us, but the prolonged lockdown we're in is certainly not doing any of us any favors. I would however, have preferred to have seen a stronger preventative approach, but hindsight is 2020. The reality is that the most affected communities are where a large number of socioeconomically disadvantaged people live. The majority of these people are employed in workplaces that require them to leave home to go to work. To help paint the picture, imagine being a 15 year old in a working class single- parent household and you have five other siblings. You hold a part-time job at MACAs to help supplement your family's income. You pick up COVID from working at MACAs and you take it home to your family. You don't discover that you've Carved, and until so you start to feel unwell and you get tested. But then at that point, it's too late. Now every member of your household has to isolate at home, whether they're positive or close contact, which means no one can go to work and access to financial relief is inadequate or non-existent. Imagine being a public transport driver who has become infected with COVID at work, and you've taken it home to your child and your partner. The three of you are being treated for COVID in different hospitals across the city, and your partner has just been intubated in ICU. As a healthcare worker, I grow increasingly concerned about the impact this outbreak is having on the working class in Sydney and across the entire world. Financial distress is a consequence of the pandemic, not lockdowns families are being ripped apart because of the pandemic not lockdowns our best tool to get through this pandemic is getting vaccinated but it is not the only tool in our toolbox lockdowns are meant to limit the spread of the virus lockdowns allow us to test trace isolate and quarantine to keep the spread under control The national cabinet's plan forward is based on the doherty institute modeling using data and calculating factors to answer the question what percent of fully vaccinated people do we need before we can start relaxing restrictions the doherty modeling also calculates an estimated number of deaths in the first 180 days if we started to roll back restrictions with how many with um, active cases in the community one of the variable inputs here that's really important is the calculation of how many active cases there are currently. And that those models only go for 180 days. We don't see what happens after that. Now, today in New South Wales, the government announced that we had 1,599 new known COVID-19 cases with 1,164 people being treated in hospital, 221 ICU beds being used by COVID, and eight more deaths. In the last 14 days, that equates to 19,052 new cases and 81 deaths. 81 preventable deaths. Current modeling shows our peak case numbers and hospitalizations should be somewhere around mid October. It's also expected that New South Wales will hit the 70% of people over the age of 16 who are fully vaccinated and are planning to see pubs clubs hairdressers and cafes start to cautiously reopen around october 18th at the predicted peak of this outbreak with i think my calculation was about 3.6 million people still unvaccinated in the state i'm afraid to imagine it I'm, I'm afraid to imagine what it would be like for myself and my colleagues. I am becoming more and more exhausted every day, and just like my colleagues, I worry when we hit that hard limit. Drowning is a very apt description of what it feels like to be a healthcare worker right now. I have a lot of healthcare colleagues, not just nurses, but doctors, psychologists, allied health professionals, ambars. We all talk about how our workplaces have suddenly been converted to COVID wards and how our resources are being stretched more and more every day. Senior doctors and nurses are being redeployed to COVID wards and ICUs and often being replaced by less experienced junior staff, if at all. In ICU and recess, which is like the ICU of the emergency department, it requires one nurse to one patient 24/7 to keep that person alive. It takes a team of bare minimum five nurses and doctors to manage cardiac or respiratory arrest. Two things that are more common in current situation with COVID. This requires that the doctors and nurses are experienced and specially trained for advanced life-saving procedures. And what happens if you have that one team of five doctors and nurses on shift, but there are multiple arrests occurring all at once. Because the emergency department is understaffed and also facing a really high acuity of patients. And it's difficult to consider the grave consequences if the healthcare system hits those hard limits. Imagine having a stroke and arriving at the hospital emergency department where you are kept in an ambulance or tent outside while doctors and nurses take blood samples, monitor your vital signs and rush to deliver the required life-saving treatments to you while also needing to care for a dozen or so other patients with COVID who require time-sensitive life-saving care. This is also in addition to all of the patients who are probably inside the emergency department waiting too. This is the reality myself, my colleagues, and all healthcare workers are grimly facing. And I haven't even gone into the work health safety concerns regarding PPE supplies. More COVID means a higher consumption of PPE. What happens if we don't have adequate PPE? None of us signed up for the burden of deciding whose life is saved and whose is not. We're, hero- We're not heroes. We are highly skilled healthcare professionals, we're advocates and carers and we have a responsibility to speak out and many of us are. And that's why I'm speaking up today, to advocate for saving lives.
0: You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. Before we leave you, a little look at the fracking situation in the Northern Territory, part of the federal government's gas-led recovery, but at what cost? We hear from Edie Shepard, a get up campaigner.
5: The main campaigns that we put heaps of time and energy and effort into in terms of like organising capacity building resource and that sort of stuff is fracking in the Northern Territory. So at the moment, oil and gas corporations have licences over 70% of the Northern Territory, which is an unbelievable amount of of country and an unbelievable amount of landmass. And for over 10 years, traditional owners ride across the Territory. So the Beedaloo Basin in particular is bigger than Sydney. And we have a particular corporation that has a licence that is literally twice the size of Tasmania. But for 10 years, traditional owners have been saying, no, we don't want this. You have no consent. There is no free, prior and informed consent. And we have conservative governments from both major parties who are pretty wedded to gas as an idea. I don't campaign on the climate, I campaign on consent. And traditional owners across the NT have repeatedly and persistently for 10 years said no because they were not told of what the process would take. It's quite a violent process. They drill over two kilometres into the earth and pump it full of chemicals that have been known to cause cancer to basically explode the rock underground to suck out gas. And the the particularly scary thing about the Northern Territory is it's quite a dry place, right? It's pretty dry. Um, so 90% of the territory like relies on underground ball water and it's one big aquifer. And if they drill down and there's one spill, that's it for water across the territory. Without water, there is no survival. Like it's it's actually mind-boggling that this is something that anyone is persisting with in a process that has been banned in multiple places, including states here on this continent. There's currently an inquiry happening into hydraulic fracturing. The government decided, I don't know, instead of spending $50 million on housing or, I don't know, vaccinating people, that they'd give a $50 million handout to fracking corporations, which has led to this inquiry process. And one of the main things that has come out is that there aren't jobs in it. Like it's maximum a couple of hundred jobs. And when we look at the major frackers like Origin Energy, they have 7,000 staff members and under 100 of them are Aboriginal. So it's actually, it's a myth, right? It's a different playing field in the Northern Territory to say the Pilbara in Western Australia, where I was uh, a few weeks ago. I was up in the Pilbara. And this is what I mean when I say that I'm not a climate campaigner, I'm a consent campaigner. I was up there. We were talking about cultural heritage and there is, there's heavy industry up there and you have the conversation and mostly because it's like, I'm curious, right? I, I, I live in Melbourne on the East coast. I'm a bit of a like spoiled brat in that sense. And they're like, no, it's not It's not that we're against mining because it gives us our jobs. It means that I can have my car, it keeps my lights on, that sort of stuff. I'm not going to demonise anyone for doing what they need to do to survive under capitalism. I will demonise fracking in the Northern Territory though because there is no consent and there is no jobs in it. It just it doesn't stack up.
0: That's it from Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts. Contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And stick together.